Thank you, Bill. Please stand up as we prepare to read from God's Word this morning. If you would, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 1 through 9. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. Pastor Bruce continues in his message series this morning, Faith, Finances, and a Fresh Start. This morning's message is entitled, Mythbuster Modern Money myths. I tried to practice that a few times so I can say that correctly, so I, I'm still not uh, kind of blundering my way through it. So, again, Modern Money Myths is the title of this morning's message. Follow along as I read from God's Word again, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of fiction, The abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, But they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, See that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Bow your heads and pray me, please, this morning. Father in heaven, we give thanks to how great you are. You are a great and marvelous God, Father. You are the one true God. We praise you in acknowledging you for our son, for your son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us, Father. We come to you this morning asking you to reveal to us how we can be better stewards of our finances, how we can grow in our faith and ultimately start a new, a fresh start in 2011. Father, draw us closer to you, and may we be willing to respond to you in submission to you for your guidance and your direction in our lives in this great new year that is upon us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what it means to us. Be with Pastor Bruce as he speaks to us. May your spirit be upon him. Father, it's no accident you brought us all here this morning. We're here for a purpose, to hear from you. May you speak to us very loud and clearly. May we respond to you in a heart of love. We thank you for what you have for us in your name. Amen. Well, Randy, I actually thought you did pretty good with that. Mythbusters. Modern money myths. Should we say that all together? Mythbusters. Modern money myths. And uh, that's not too bad. How many of you guys have seen the show on Discovery Channel called Mythbusters? Raise your hand if you've seen the show. Oh, almost everybody. So... Most of you are familiar with the, uh, the concept, then, of Mythbusters. My, my boys, uh, Tyler, who's 13, Jack, age 9, they love this show. 
Mythbusters. In fact, they will uh, record, uh, well, I should say they, Tyler's the one who records umpteen episodes of Mythbusters and then just watches them one right after the other. He loves this show, and so I, I've seen it several times along with my wife, and, and you're indicating that you've seen it several times. And, and just to give you the concept of the show, the show's hosts, which are two special, expert, special effects experts, one's named Adam, the other Jamie, what they do, they basically use elements of the scientific method to test the validity of popular myths or common myths that people uh, tend to believe in. And uh, what the host will do at the beginning of the show is they'll introduce the myth, and then they'll explain the myth, and then they attempt to recreate the circumstances that the myth alleges to determine whether the myth is true or not. And then at the end of the show, if the myth results cannot be replicated, then the myth is confirmed as busted. You got it. Busted. And it's pretty cool when they confirm a myth is busted because they all say at the end of the show, busted. Well, that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do some myth busting as we continue in our series, Faith, Finances, and a Fresh Start. Now, with this thought in mind, here's a question I want to pose to us. Why is it, or maybe, you know, maybe you've even wondered this yourself, why is it in spite of God's sufficiency, more believers still don't trust God with their finances and honor Him in their giving? In spite of the sufficiency of God. Why don't more believers, if, if not every believer, as I mentioned last Sunday, research tells us that uh, in the average church across America, that about 30% of the people contribute 80% of the church's budget. Now, our church is, uh, is much better than the national average, and that's a testimony to your trust, your faithfulness in God as well. But the reality is, there are still people within our church who have yet to really trust God with their finances. And because of that lack of trust they have yet to really honor God in their giving. And you may be, again, asking, well, why would that be? Why is that? Well, and there are several reasons which we are trying to address in this series, um, but I want us to focus on one reason this morning. And that is, I think some of us, we have bought in to these modern money myths. And consequently, we are fearful. We're, we're a little hesitant, then, to honor God in our giving. What is a myth? Well, just for clarification, uh, I looked it up in the dictionary, and here's what it says. Dictionary's definition of a myth. It's a legendary belief or story of unknown authorship that is usually fictitious in nature. Let me give you an example of a myth that uh, was perpetrated when I was in college down in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, Back in college, this would have been 85 through 89 in that vicinity in Springfield. And uh, my freshman year got there, and in the fall, um, you know, a group of us friends, you know, I'm a freshman, as you know, they gather up all the freshmen, not all, but most, a lot of freshmen. They say, hey, you got to go out to this place south of Springfield, near the James River. There's this old abandoned Girl Scout camp. You know, and it's so, you, you know, hey, a freshman, you'll do anything. People talk you into it. You don't have a car, and you just want to get away off campus. So we go, 
and, 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 you know, and they're telling us about this old abandoned Girl Scout camp. We get out there, and it's at night, it's kind of dark, and you only have the light from the moon and whatnot, and, uh, and you've got to walk off the side of the road into the, and what it is, it's some brick buildings or cinder block buildings that, are, that have crumbled, they're broken down, and you can tell it's the remnants of an old Girl Scout camp. And, uh, of course, what I didn't know is that there were some other guys who had gone on ahead of us, and they're waiting. And so us freshmen, guys, girls, we're just walking on. And I tell you what, they come jumping out, and they scare the bejeebies out of us. You know, and the myth is that the reason this old Girl Scout camp is abandoned is because while it was going on, while Girl Scouts were there, there's this, well, psychotic serial killer who actually killed one of these Girl Scouts. And so over time, they abandoned it. Well, you know, I'm like, well, that's a myth. I don't believe that, but let me tell you. What do you think I'm doing next year, my sophomore year, and my junior year, and senior year? Man, I'm, I'm on the bandwagon of this. So every year, man, in the fall, we're gathering up all the freshman guys and girls we can get. We're taking them out to the old abandoned Girl Scout camp, and we're fabricating this myth, and it just, well, it grows. You know how myths grow. And there's only a slice of thread of truth to it at all. Now, we had a lot of fun with this myth, and we used it to scare a lot of freshman girls and guys. And in the same way, this is what happens with a lot of Christians when it comes to their finances, when it comes to their giving. Satan uses some of these money myths to deceive our minds and to kind of scare us into thinking, I don't know if I can trust God with my finances. I don't know if I can start giving to God. What's going to Is he going to take care of me or not? And before long, we subconsciously or even consciously, we begin to buy in to some of these common money myths, and they get a grip on our heart, and we never honor God with our giving. Now, that's why, if you're here this morning, and you need a fresh start in your finances, notice this in your notes. It also involves dispelling, with God's truth, the money myths people believe in today. And perhaps you're here this morning, and you have bought into a few of these money myths. Maybe not all of them, but maybe one or two of them. We need to dispel them with God's truth. The Apostle Paul encountered the same situation with the church at Corinth. Some of the believers in this church were not honoring God in their giving. And the reason is because they were being deceived by some of these same money myths, and they were then seeking to justify their lack of giving because of them. And so Paul dispels these money myths by using the Macedonian believers as an example. That, hey, these myths that you're buying into, they're not true. Look at these believers over here. And he holds them up as an example for us to look at. In fact, the Macedonians not only overcame these money myths themselves, but they excelled in what God calls, or what Paul calls, the grace of giving. And so what I want us to do this morning is to identify some of the money myths that people perhaps believe in today and dispel them with God's truth. So are you ready to do some myth busting? Right? Anybody here ready to do some myth busting? If you're not, you're going to. All right, number one. Here's the first myth. Number one myth. Only people with lots of money should give. This is probably one of the most popular myths people buy into. Many people believe only wealthy people, people with lots of money, should give to God. 
This myth basically says, hey, let Bob give. Let Jane give. They're the ones with all the money. Let them give. And we tend to say to ourselves, man, if I had their money, I would surely give. In fact, I would probably give more than them. Yes, myth number one is that only people with lots of money should give, but that's a myth. Notice again what the Apostle Paul says about these believers in the Macedonian region in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 2. Look at it again. He says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Now, Paul says that these believers gave out of what circumstances? The overflow of their money? The overflow of their savings account? No way. He says they gave out of great trial of affliction in deep poverty. Now, what does it mean to give out of a great trial? Well, this word for trial, it's an interesting word. It's the same word that means purging. The word picture is of a of a precious metal that is heated until the liquid impurities rise to the top and then it's scraped off. And pure metal is left, and when it's cool, it's stronger than ever. That's the idea. That's what we have with the churches of Macedonia. In other words, these believers, they were being tested. The heat was being turned up on them. And yet, out of this great trial, they gave to the Lord's work. Paul also says that these believers in Macedonia gave out of deep poverty. Now, we, we know what that means. Deep poverty here, in fact, it literally means rock-bottom destitution. And the Romans had ravaged their economy. And as a result, most people were living in deep poverty at that time. Now, as you know, in our, our nation, in our, economic, our economy, we can, some of us can relate to this. Our unemployment rate's almost at 10%, 9.6, I think, is the latest uh, figure. Um, and our economy is, is in a recession, or we've been in one. They're now saying we're slowly coming out of it. And so we can maybe relate a little bit to the Macedonians whose economy has been ravaged. But even these circumstances did not keep them from honoring God in their giving. They were living in hard times, but they trusted God's sufficiency, not the economy. These believers did not buy into this myth that only those people with lots of money, hey, they are the ones that should give. So we can say this myth is what? Busted. Let's say it together. This myth is busted. Notice your notes there. All believers should give, regardless of how much or how little money one has. Jesus busted this myth as well when he encountered a widow giving her last two coins. In fact, we're going to look specifically at this story next Sunday, but I'll give you a little uh, a heads up on it here. Remember the story? This poor widow comes to the temple to worship and she gives her last two coins, kind of the equivalence of our two pennies today. And a lot of people would have counseled her, hey, keep your money. Keep that two, those two coins. They would tell her that only people with lots of money should give. You shouldn't do that. But Jesus, again, holds her up as an example to follow in Luke 21, verses 3 and 4, when he says, Truly I say to you that this widow has put in more than all. For 
All these out of the abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. How many times have we heard only people with lots of money should give? In fact, some people say if I had a million dollars or if I won the lottery, man, I'd give then. I'd surely give some money to God then. But consider this. If God can't trust you to give out of what you have now, then how will he ever trust you to give out of more if he would bless you with riches and wealth? Remember the quote from last Sunday? It's a good little quote. Here it is again. It's not what you do with the million if fortune should be your lot, but what you do at present with the dollar and quarter you got. How true that is. It's a myth that only people with lots of money should give. Some of the greatest givers are most often people with very little. The truth is giving is not about wealth. It's about our willingness. It's about our heart. And giving is not only about problems. It's about our priorities in life. And so this this is simply a myth that's been busted by the Macedonians and even by this poor little widow. The second money myth that people buy into, number two, is that it's unpleasant to give to God. It's unpleasant to give. People who are deceived by this money myth think we, sh- we would be happier if we just kept our money for ourselves and for our family. Some people even believe we should give until it hurts. But this is a myth that Satan uses to scare us from giving. The truth is, there is great joy in giving to God. Paul said that these Macedonian believers gave with the abundance of their joy in verse 2. So how does God's word dispel this money myth? Well, again, Jesus busted this myth when he uh, says in, in Luke, I'm sorry, not Luke, but Acts chapter 20, verse 35, Luke is quoting Jesus here when he said it's more blessed to what? To give than to receive. Now, All you have to do is think about this truth in your own life. At what particular holiday? Christmas, you got it. And if you have kids or grandchildren, then you know this is the truth. I mean, think about it. Who gets more joy, kids opening their presents or the parents and grandparents seeing their kids and grandparents open the presents? I mean, we go to my mom and dad's house for Christmas, and you ought to see my mom. I mean, she's biggest grin of the year on her face watching all her kids and grandkids open the presents and dad he sits there in his chair and he doesn't sit there like this (laughs) he's got a big old grin on his face too because you enjoy you enjoy seeing the recipient of that in the privilege of giving so i think we can say this myth is busted it's a joy to give to god now i will say one caveat with that That is when we give with the right attitude, because people do give, and it's unpleasant when they do it, because they don't have the right attitude. It's a joy to give to God when we do give with the right attitude. A six-year-old girl insisted that as a new first grader, she should be allowed to take part in the offering and put something in the offering plate during the worship service. Well, mom and dad agreed wholeheartedly, and so dad gave her a dollar. And explain that God loves a cheerful giver. 
when the usher stopped beside the little girl and held out the offering plate, the little girl's voice rang out in protest. Hey, mister, don't you have change for a dollar? Her very embarrassed father leaned down and whispered something in her ear. And the whole congregation heard her reply. But daddy, I'd be a cheerfuler giver if I could give some to the Lord to buy a candy bar too. And that's how some of us try to give. Just like this little girl, we give with one hand open and the other hand still closed. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, a verse you're familiar with, that God loves what kind of giver? A cheerful giver. But that cheerfulness and joy only comes when we give with the right attitude and with right motives. Look at these Macedonian believers. They gave out of an abundance of joy, even in the midst of their great trial and deep poverty. Why? Because they understood that giving is not, it's not about giving with a grudge. It's all about giving with a heart of gratitude, understanding that I'm simply giving back to God, and he's the giver of it. And I have been blessed, whether it's with a little or with a lot. Why is it that some people never find the abundance of joy in giving like the Macedonian believers? Because we simply simply haven't practiced giving with a cheerful heart. It's a myth to say that only people with lots of money should give, and it's an equal myth to say that it's unpleasant to give. Another money myth that robs us of our joy in giving is, number three, giving results in a lack of resources. It results in a lack of resources. Some fear that if we give, oh man, I'm not going to have anything for myself. I'm not going to have enough for my family. But it's a myth to say that giving results in a lack of resources, and yet many people are still deceived by this myth. Why? Because they never add the supernatural power of God into their economic equations of life. Jesus busted this myth when he said in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And then, of course, we, we learned in the story last Sunday when Jesus fed the 5,000 that he busted that myth. Listen to what Paul wrote. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And then, of course, all we have to do is go back to last Sunday. Remember when the little boy gave his sack lunch to Jesus? His five little loaves of bread and his two little fish. Did his giving result in a lack of resources that day? No way. I mean, Jesus multiplied that little boy's lunch to the point that there were how many baskets of food left over? Twelve. That little boy sowed bountifully, and then he reaped bountifully. And so I think we can say that this third money myth is busted by God's truth. Listen, giving results in God's blessings in our life. The fact is, Some of the richest people in the world are poor. And some of the poorest people in the world are rich. You say, 
say that again? How is that possible? That's funny math, Bruce. Because some people have what money can buy, and some have what money can't buy. You see, money will buy a bed, but it won't buy you sleep. Money will buy books, but it doesn't buy you brains. Money buys food, but not an appetite. Money will buy you a nice big house, but it won't turn that house into a home. Money can buy you medicine, but it doesn't buy you necessarily all the health that you need to enjoy life. Hell, money can buy you entertainment, but not joy and purpose and satisfaction in life. Money can buy you religion, but it doesn't buy you salvation. And money can buy you a, quote, good life, according to the world's standards, but it will not buy you eternal life. It's simply a myth to say that giving results in a lack of resources. Many of you here this morning can testify to this truth. And you can testify out of your own experience of what God has done in your life in honoring you because you have honored him. The Puritan Thomas Watson once said, There is a blessed kind of giving, which though makes the purse lighter, makes the crown heavier. John Bunyan, most of you may know, he was, he's the author of the book Pilgrim's Progress, and he wrote, A man there was, and they called him mad. The more he gave, the more he had. Now, again, as I shared last Sunday, I don't understand how all this works. But here's what I do know. It works. True, you can't make sense of it on a ledger book. You can't necessarily figure it all out in an accounting program. But the truth is, you will never miss what you give to God. Here's something to think about. Could it be, could it be, possibly, could it be that your lack of resources is the result of your lack of giving and honoring God with your finances? Listen, God will never allow you to, quote, be the loser in life when you are faithful to his word and obedient to his will with your finances. A fourth money myth some people buy into is just give what you can. Just do what you can. And many Christians buy into this myth, hook, line, and sinker. But the truth is, we can do more than we ever imagined we were able to do. Notice what Paul says about the Macedonian believers in verse 3. He says, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. Freely willing to do what? To give according to their ability and then beyond their ability. And you say, well, how's that possible? By the grace of God. And that's why it's called grace giving. In verse 1, we read that the grace of God was bestowed on the Macedonian believers so that they could give beyond their financial ability. And you may be sitting there right now thinking to yourself, well, how could they give beyond their financial ability? That doesn't make any sense. I agree, it doesn't. That's why it's called grace giving, because it can only be explained by the grace of God working in our lives. You say, well, what exactly is grace giving? Listen, it's God's miraculous gift of enabling his people, empowering, if you will, his people to give beyond their financial ability. 
Listen, we are to give according to our abilities, according to our financial means. In fact, uh, Paul goes on, he talks about how to give systematically and to give generously, consistently and whatnot, and, and to give proportionately or percentage, if you will. That's giving out of your ability, of what God has blessed you with. And then there's times where we are to then trust in God's grace to even give beyond that. Now, I'll be the first to say, that's a leap of faith to give at those moments. But you know what? There are many of you here who understand and can testify to that truth as well. It wasn't that long ago that our church went through a stewardship campaign, a capital fundraising campaign, the Shama campaign, do you remember? And there were many of you who gave in that campaign beyond your financial ability. And it was a true trust in God, a leap of faith, if you will, to say, I commit to give this amount. When I look at what I make and what my expenses are, and it doesn't add up. How is this going to be possible? Through the grace of God. And at the end of it, how many of you are like, wow, that was a miracle? Because at the end, you look back and you see what you were able to give through God's grace. How many of you still have your Shama campaign commitment card? Anybody? Raise your hand if you have your Shama campaign commitment card. Donna does. Anybody else? Shirley Cornelius does. I still have mine. I keep it on my desk at home. And it's right there in a little slot. And one of the reasons, at least for me personally, why I still have it is a reminder of God's grace and what he can do when I step out in faith. I said, every once in a while, I'll pull that out and just look at it. And I'm just, I, there's times I'm blown away. You do the same thing, Shirley? Yeah. In a drawer? <laughs> but if you wanted to, you could pull it out, right? Donna, you do that every once in a while? And you may not have your card, but most of you, you remember what you gave and what you committed to give. And if you think about it, it's, it's amazing. I could think we could say this myth is busted. busted. I like Bill's enthusiasm here. Listen, with God's grace, you can give beyond your own financial ability. And yet many Christians are still deceived by this fourth myth. And this impacts how many people give today. Here's how people who believe this myth usually give. They sit down at the desk, kitchen table, their car, wherever the case may be, and, and they begin to write checks and pay their bills, or at their computer and pay their bills online. And then they spend some money eating out. They'll spend some money going to see a movie. They'll spend some money here for lunch or this and that for their kids, going to Starbucks, etc. And then at the end of the month, if anything is left over, well, then they'll give to God. In fact, these are some of the same people who usually say, here is what I'm able to give. 
at the end of the week or the end of the month. And consequently, these people struggle to give. And they never benefit from God's economic plan. They never experience what God wants for us in the area of our finances. Why? Because they have bought into the myth that you should just give what you can or what makes financial sense. Listen, it's a myth to say this. This is a myth. When we say that, we are leaving God out of our stewardship, and we're failing to trust in the sufficiency of God. You realize it's a miraculous thing to be able to give from God's hand. As David said in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 14, listen to what he writes. Everything comes from you, speaking to God, and we only give you what comes from your hand. It's a myth to say only people with lots of money should give. It's a myth to say it's unpleasant to give. It's a myth to say giving results in a lack of resources. And it's a myth to say just give what you can. But here's one other myth that needs to be busted as well. Our last, well, not the last one, but number five. And that is you have to give. You have to. Giving must be forced. But this is another myth Satan uses to keep us from honoring God in our giving. Listen, Paul's emphasis is not on our giving by guilt because we have to, nor is his emphasis on our giving with a grudge because we ought to. Paul's emphasis is on our giving with grace because we want to. God's word teaches us that giving is it's a voluntary thing that we do. Giving is a privilege that, that we choose to participate in because we love our God. Paul says in verse 4 that the Macedonian believers gave freely and willingly. These believers saw giving as a privilege to participate in, in other words. So I think we can say this myth is busted. Grace giving is a voluntary response of my love for God. The truth is giving is not about obligation. It's about opportunity. Paul says in verse 4 that the Macedonian believers were imploring or begging Paul to receive their offering. Why? Because they saw the opportunity to give. They saw the need and were freely willing to be used by God to meet that need. No wonder Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you. Now, when we allow the grace of God to open up our hearts, listen, he will then open up our hands to voluntarily honor him in our giving. It's a myth to say that giving must be forced. Those committed to Jesus Christ will always see giving as a voluntary response of their love for God. But there's one last myth we want to look at. And this myth needs to be busted as well. And that is, God only wants my money. This is one of the more famous myths that people tend to believe. That all God wants is money. In fact, then they superimpose that myth on the church. All the church ever wants is money. And that may be true for some churches, or at least the perception of it. But notice what Paul writes in verse 5. He says, and this they did, not as we had hoped, but first gave what? Themselves to the Lord, 
and then to us by the will of God. You see, God wants your life. That's what he wants first. And these Macedonian believers realize something we need to realize, that God wants my life more than he wants my money. Why? Because when Jesus is Lord over your life, he will be Lord over your finances. So this myth is busted by God's truth. Notice it in your notes. God wants you to give yourself first and then your resources. And please understand, giving, as I've said for the last two weeks, it's never a money issue. It's a lordship issue that we struggle with in our hearts. And perhaps you're thinking, well, well, why should I give? Why should I make Jesus the Lord of my life and the Lord of my finances? Well, Paul answers this question in verse 9 when he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he explains what that grace is specifically. It's one of the clearest, shortest, simplest verses of the gospel in a nutshell. Even why we celebrate Christmas. It's also why we choose to honor God with our finances. Notice what he then goes on to say. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was, what's it say? Rich. Yet for your sakes he became what? Poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Amen is right. Do you realize what Paul's saying here? He's breaking this down in simplistic terms that everyone here can understand. He's saying the Son of God left the riches and glories of heaven and became poor. How did he become poor? He descended from heaven, descended onto this earth. That's why we celebrate Christmas. And one of the evidences of that, he's born in a stable, in a manger of common parents, poor parents, if you will, so that you and I might become rich in Jesus Christ. It's not rich in the world's eyes. It's not rich with stuff and things, necessarily, but rich in Jesus Christ. You see, what ultimately matters is not what money can buy you, but what money cannot buy. Christ is who makes us rich. Why should we give our lives to God and honor Him with our finances? Because God graciously gave His Son Jesus that we might gain the riches of eternal life. And folks, that eternal life begins now. One of the other myths doesn't have necessarily to do with money, is we think salvation is something for the future. And albeit there's a, an aspect of truth, because when we pass from this life to the next, as believers, we enter into the presence of the Lord, right? So it is future. But folks, listen, salvation, it begins now on this earth, too. There are benefits of being a child of God that begin today. He was rich and became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. Now, let me say it this way. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, you know what that makes you? What's that make you? Rich. Rich. 
So every one of us who are believers can walk out of here this morning and say, man, I am rich. I am rich. I'm rich in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then God goes beyond that, and he, he blesses us in ways that are also in the material life as well. Many of us here, we will go home in a car that works, and we will go to a house that is warm, and we will sit on furniture, and we will watch the NFL playoffs this afternoon on a TV. And most of us, that TV is a flat screen, LCD or plasma TV. And we will enjoy our afternoon. And then we will stuff ourselves. We will eat food. And we won't think twice about it. So we're not only rich in Jesus Christ, but folks, we are just rich in general as well. God has been good. Even in this economy that we all are, oh, so frantic about. What's going to happen to health care? Our nation? Aren't you God, glad God reigns? Well, how do we get started in applying this message? Well, I want to challenge you with a MythBuster challenge. MythBuster challenge. Step number one is identify which money myths you have bought into and compare these myths with God's word. So identify which ones. Ask yourself, do an honest evaluation. Which of these money myths have I bought into? And then let God's word bust those myths you've been deceived by. Step number two is to ask God to help you to dispel the deception of these myths by applying the truth of God's word. It always takes truth to dispel a myth. And it takes God's truth, not ours. Step number three is then choose to trust God with your finances. And one of the evidences, listen to me, one of the evidences of your trust in God with your finances is what? Is honoring God with our giving. Listen, it's an, somebody comes to me and says, yeah, I, I trust God with finances, and yet they don't give. Is there any weight in that, what they say? No. You are deceived. If you think you're trusting God with your finances, and yet you do not honor God in your giving. The two go hand in hand. It's an evidence of our faith and our trust in God. So will you choose to trust God? That's a question you have to answer. It's a voluntary thing. You have to be the one to decide. So will you take the myth buster challenge? Three steps right here. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning, and we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the example of these believers in the Macedonian churches and how they put to rest. They, in a sense, busted these myths that are still common and prevalent among so many Christians today. And Lord, we thank you that we have your truth in which to compare to these myths. Lord, what we need is really action. We just need to step out in faith and trust you in the area of our finances. And Lord, I pray that you would give us, you would grant us and bestow your grace upon us to do just that.
Lord, maybe there's some who are struggling in this area of their life. May you specifically speak to them. And Lord, I pray that by your grace, they would take that, that leap of faith, if you will, and begin to experience the joy of trusting you with their finances and honoring you in their giving. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.